0: Chapter 1 of Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty. Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island by May Fowell Hoisington and Lillian Elizabeth Roy. Chapter 1. Say, what's that over there? There near the cove, look. There it is again, sticking its fin out of the water cried Billy Remington excitedly. As toggle iron in hand, he stood in the bow of the large rowboat manned by three other boys. Gee, suppose it's a shark, exclaimed Paul Alvord, who, with Dudley West, was visiting Sunset Island, the main resort of the Remingtons. whoo what if it is? Let's row over, and maybe we can have a try to harpoon it, added Dudley eagerly. The white ash breeze soon brought them near the spot where the fin had last been seen and Fred Remington, the oldest of the four boys, rested upon his oars while scanning the face of the water. "'Look, quick, there it is again!' shouted Billy. "'Let's try and drive it nearer shore if we can!' came from Fred, who was as eager as the other three lads to become better acquainted with the strange object. Then began a breathless chase. Four highly excited young fishermen yelling at each other, or pulling madly at the oars when Fred so ordered, and cracking muscles to backwater when the need demanded, as was the case whenever the queer hulk of fish threatened to swim too near the boy's boat. However, the creature was already in too shallow water for its bulk to swim, and it struggled valiantly, if futilely, to make its escape from the nemesis in the boat. "'What a whopper!' cried Dudley, while Billy carefully rose from his seat with the harpoon held in his hands. "'Now, now, give it to him!' called Fred. Thus importuned, Billy tried his luck. The small harpoon, which had been prepared for a chance fling at a porpoise, was let fly at the floundering mass. The aim was true, but the iron rebounded as from an oaken plank.' With gasps of wonderment from the boys, the harpoon was hauled back, and Billy anxiously tried again, but with the same result. The huge fish was now seen with its back fin clear out of the water, in its maddened efforts to swim in the insufficient depth. What can it be? asked Paul curiously. I'm sure I don't know. Certainly not a shark, replied Fred. Then turning to Billy, he added, Here, let me have a try at it. Billy passed over the harpoon and the two boys rowed the boat quite close to the grayish mass, so that Fred distinctively saw a great eye. "'Steady, boys! Quiet now!' warned Fred, raising the weapon above his head. The big fish lay temporarily resting when Fred launched the iron with all his strength, an accurate aim at the eye which he rightly judged might be vulnerable as the harpoon sunk in the target. The consuming anxiety of the next few moments seemed like eternity to the boys as they wondered whether they could win out in the mad battle that began the very moment the harpoon struck in. The water was churned as if by a great paddle-wheel. The spray flew over everything while the fish whopped forward, then suddenly backed, then flung itself from side to side in an agonized and frenzied plunge for safety. The harpoon held good, however, and Fred paid out about thirty fathoms of line before the victim became exhausted. It succeeded in gaining deeper water in the frantic battle for life, and had not the iron held securely, the unwieldy fish would surely have broken away to its freedom in the sea. It really looks like a young whale, don't you think so, Fred? ventured Paul, after the fish had quieted somewhat. Nonsense! "'But it certainly is a queer bunch of hide and bones,' returned Fred. "'It was impossible for the boys to handle their prize, as it was so heavy. "'But they managed to drag the monster close to the stern of their boat, "'and then tow it triumphantly into Saturday Cove, where lay a large schooner. "'The mate yelled at the boys, and Fred looked up to find a group of men eagerly watching. "'Come alongside, and we'll haul em out for you,' shouted the mate, the boys obeyed, and the mate ordered his crew to help. "'Pass a bowline round his tail and hoist him up!' "'It don't seem to have no tail!' complained the sailor. And her head, another. It's all bulk!' <laughs> laughed another. Fred passed the harpoon line aboard, and the crew tailed onto it. But the combined efforts of the four husky sailors were insufficient to raise the still-struggling creature clear of the water. After a time, however— They managed to get a good view, so that the mate recognized it for a deep-sea sunfish, or mola. He then sent the sailors forward for the large hook used in catting the anchor. They hooked the throat-halyards into this and passed it down to Fred, who tried to fasten the anchor hook in the fish's mouth. But the beak-like jaws were too small. Finally he managed to hook it into the mola's eye alongside the harpoon. With this powerful tackle, the sailors hoisted the fish out of the water. Visitors and fishermen in every imaginable sort of craft clustered about the yacht, all intent upon seeing the curiosity and securing a good snapshot of it. With the others came the captain of the power launch belonging to Sunset Island. "'Hey, boys, what a monster catch!' called Captain Ed. "'It sure is!' "'How much do you reckon he weighs?' asked the man who overheard the captain's remark. "'Looks like half a ton to me, but there's no telling without scales, Handy,' returned the captain. "'Oh, we weighed him all right, Cap, by the scales on his back,' ha-hawed the mate of the schooner. The joke was an old one with Maine fishermen, and the mate resorted to it without thinking, so the captain caught him up instantly. Naw you didn't, another, because he hain't got no scales, see?' The laugh that broke simultaneously from the crew was thoroughly enjoyed by everyone, including the mate, for the mola had a very tough hide, but was scaleless. Its apology for a tail was a frill of scallops opposite the beak end, while the most prominent features were the dorsal and ventral fins, each one about a foot and a half in length. What'd you say he thought he weighed cap? asked the mate of Captain Ed as soon as the laugh died down. "'Nigh on, half a ton, thinks I,' responded the captain. That started a new argument among the local fishermen, lying in those parts about the weight of the fish. During the discussion, Fred managed to shove his boat close to the launch from Sunset Island. Then he hailed Captain Ed. "'Let's tow the sunfish over home and give father and mother a chance to look at the queer thing.' So, acting upon Fred's suggestion the captain helped the sailors lower the mola into the water again and remove the yacht's tackle. The procession started. First, Captain Ed, Billy, and Dudley in the powerboat, towing the rowboat with Fred and Paul in it. They, in turn, towed the sunfish, the latter at the end of the rope churning up the water as it careened after the boat. While the four boys excitedly retailed the capture of their prize, the launch was making good speed across West Penobscot Bay to a group of three small islands lying near the 14-mile-long shore of Islesboro, which divides the bay into east and west. The boys' summer camp was on the most northerly isle which contained about eight acres of land, high, rocky, and closely wooded with fir and spruce. The middle island, called Isola Bella, was some twenty four acres in extent and was also high and well wooded. It belonged to Mrs. Remington's brother, William Farwell, always known as Uncle Bill. The southerly one of the island trio was very appropriately named Flat Island because of its nature not a tree upon it and shaped like a skate with a sand spit for a tail. The three islands were about a quarter mile from each other, and about two miles from the mainland, where the boys had just caught the mola. Great was the excitement at Sunset Island, when the convoy was discerned through the spyglass, as soon as voices could be heard. And in fact, before that time, the eager watchers, sitting upon the rocks of Treasure Cove, were eagerly shouting and waving hands to the approaching craft. What did you catch? Is it a porpoise? Where did you get it? Mr. Remington was the first to reach the boats and help the boys. "'Well, I declare, a sunfish. I haven't seen one in a long time. What are you going to do with it, now that you've got it?' "'To tell the truth, we never thought of that,' retorted Fred. "'All we wanted to do was catch it and get it over here to exhibit to you folks,' added Billy. "'I've heard say that the hide makes mighty good insides for baseballs, count of the rubbery quality.' "'casually remarked the captain with a twinkle in his eyes. "'Isn't it a good fish to eat?' questioned Paul. "'Nah, you might as well try to eat a meal off of auto tires "'and chopped kindling wood, served with fish oil dressing,' (laughs) "'chuckled the captain. "'Then let's get Mose down here and fool him into believing he has to skin "'and cook the fish for chowder,' proposed Dudley mischievously. "'So So we we will, will,' agreed the other boys and Dudley ran up the bank to call Mose. The brown chef soon appeared on the rocks in front of the bungalow to see what all the commotion was about, and Billy called up to him. "'Bring down your tools to clean this fish, Mose. We're going to have it for tonight's dinner, because Cap' Med says it won't keep,' added Paul. "'You'll have to slice off the big steaks first, Mose, and chop up the rest for the chowder,' concluded Fred. Never doubting the sincerity of the orders given, Mose went back to find a huge pan and the butcher knife. With his sleeves rolled up and a heavy burlap apron tied about his waist, he came prepared to clean the monster fish. While everyone stood about grinning, Mose started in to cut off the end where the beak grew, but saw as powerfully as he would, the knife made no impression on the tough hide. "'I declare to goodness, Miss Rempton!' How y'all ever goin' to charge dis elephant fish, worried Mose as he stood up to mop the moisture from his perspiring brow. A shot of laughter from the circle of hoaxing islanders made Mose glance quizzically at them. Ha! That was one of you, Mose, exclaimed Billy gleefully. Never mind, you Indians. Mose got all summer, you know, and I won't git even with you yet, prophesied the jolly cook brandishing the fearful knife as he trudged away toward the bungalow, leaving the laughing crowd standing by the fish. "'We've got to keep it some way until Uncle Bill comes,' suggested Fred, looking about the cove for a possible place to anchor the mola. "'Why, when is Uncle Bill expected?' asked Elizabeth Remington, Fred's fifteen-year-old sister. "'Not for ten days yet. And really, boys, it will be impossible for you to keep this curiosity near sunset as long as that.' you will have to tow it out for the tide to carry far far away for more reasons than one before your uncle arrives advised mrs remington can't we keep it here for a day or two mother begged billy not if the flies assemble for a picnic retorted she it's too bad uncle tom and aunt edith are not at rosemary yet he would just love to see this natural history thing he's always so enthusiastic about curiosities and all such sort of stuff," added Elizabeth, gazing at the Mola regretfully. "'Well, that's what they miss for not coming to Maine before the First of July,' declared Billy. "'I nearly missed it, too, didn't I?' said Paul, deeply grateful that he hadn't. If I had waited as Hilda wanted me to, just to spend the Fourth with her, I wouldn't have been here yet, would I?' The others laughed at such evidence, and Paul added, "'Well, I'm sure glad I'm here.' "'So am I,' declared Dudley. "'and I'm going to stay, too.' "'Again, everyone laughed at the positiveness "'of the two young visitors "'who were Billy's chums at school, "'and Paul turned to inquire of his hostess. "'How long do you suppose we can stay here with you?' "'Just as long as you behave "'and are not much care or trouble. "'But it also depends somewhat "'on what your parents say,' "'replied the lady of the island. "'Oh, they won't mind us staying, "'and we'll just do everything you say, Miss Remington,' "'quickly promised Dudley.' "'You just bet we will, and, and my mother and sister are real glad I can visit Billy all summer on such a dandy island,' assured Paul. "'Well, then, the Sagamore of Sunset Isle has his work all cut out for him this summer,' laughed Mrs. Remington, nodding at Fred, who was seventeen and the oldest all the children. "'Looks like some program, too,' commented Fred. "'By the time the season is over, Fred will have had such fine training—' that he will have to go to Plattsburgh for a rest. He will be able to pass high in the physical requirements, all right, added Mr. Remington, who had joined the group in time to hear the latter part of the conversation. As Mr. Remington finished speaking, the bell rang for luncheon, and a crowd of hungry islanders trooped in to eat every crumb of Moses' delicious meal. Then, feeling like a new man once more, Fred announced his intention of sailing over to Isola Bella, to bring his aunt and little cousins Miriam and Betty to Sunset Island to see the deep-sea curiosity. In an hour's time, therefore, Fred landed his passengers at the float stage and hurried them over to the place where lay the giant sunfish. "'Oh, I wish Papa could see it!' cried Miriam Farwell, the eldest child of Aunt Miriam and Uncle Bill. The energetic islanders finally wearied of admiring the Mola and turned their attention to other things. I wish Uncle Bill would offer a prize for the biggest fish caught this summer. You know, he did that last year, said Billy, the financier of the family. That makes an incentive to catch something larger than your neighbors. It is true, but I wouldn't scorn to land a big fish, even if there were no prize given me, said Fred. No one would be so... Foolish as that, scoffed Paul. Captain, how about the trawl this summer? asked Mr. Remington. Oh, yes, and the lobster pots, Captain Ed, added Billy. Well, now, we can overhaul the trawl and set the pots whenever you say, replied the captain. Then the sooner we start, the better, declared Dudley. If you catch any lobsters, I'll be surprised, all right. T'other fishermen ain't catching nothing this year,' said the captain. "'It's queer where all the lobsters have gone. They used to be so plentiful that we could easily catch a mess anywhere. Supplying the canneries doesn't explain everything about the scarcity,' commented Mrs. Remington. "'I've noticed another thing that has changed, too, since we first began coming to Maine years ago,' added Mr. Remington.' Do you remember how rarely kelp was found in this bay then? Now all the ledges in the back bay are covered with it, the ledges that used to be covered with mussels and sea anemones. That's so, but I never thought of it before, said Mrs. Remington thoughtfully, then adding, The cod and other big fish are now being caught here in the bay, whereas the fishermen used to go way down below rockland for them. The others had been listening intently to these interesting remarks, and Billy ventured a theory. Do you suppose the kelps got anything to do with the big fish coming to our bay? I've heard some of the natives wonder over the same thing, and the larger fish being in these waters might explain the disappearance of the lobsters, as it is said that lobster spawn floats in masses near the surface of the water at a certain period of its development that it may be benefited by the sun's rays. Of course... The big fish eat millions of the eggs at one meal, thus eliminating just so many future lobsters, explained Mr. Remington. It sure sounds reasonable, Father, added Fred. Still, that does not compensate us for the loss of our delicious broiled lobster, argued Mrs. Remington. The sooner we fix up the traps, then, the sooner we can have a treat of lobster, laughed her husband. Let's begin right now and put them into working shape, cried Billy. And I'll act for Uncle Bill this time. I'll offer a prize for the largest lobster caught this season, announced his father. Oh, good, there are just four traps that each one of us boys can bait and take charge of one, decided Billy. And remember, boys, besides the prize, there is some form of honor in woodcraft for knowing fish, reminded their mother. Sure enough, twenty-five kinds of fish for a coup responded Fred, and fifty for a grand coup added Elizabeth, ho, oh, we can never win fifty, declared Dudley, Why not? if a trawl rakes up a hundred different kinds, it'll be easy. Bragged Paul, then Mrs. Remington said. You know, boys, we will soon begin our weekly councils, and you ought to be able to get the low honor for twenty-five fish without any difficulty. Dudley, how many do you know now? Are lobsters fish? countered Dudley. Why, of course they are sort of a fish, quickly retorted Paul. It seems to me that the Woodcraft manual says vertebrae, and that means backbones, so lobsters should not be included explained Mrs. Remington. "'Anyway, I know a cunner, a sculpin, and a mackerel. That's three. And a salmon makes four. And a cod and a flounder, that's six. Now, let me see... Oh, yes, a harbor pollock, and and uh, I know a lots more, too, but I can't just remember,' admitted Dudley. "'Ha-ha, <laughs> Dud, you ought to be named Dub. What about every fish we caught today?' teased Fred. "'Gee, that's so! I clean forgot! The Mola! Guess it was too tiny to remember,' grinned Dudley. "'And the dogfish! And the skate, too, Dud!' reminded Billy. "'But I haven't seen them yet. I've only known them by their names and the pictures.' "'Say, Father, will you help us set the trawl so we can try for the coup? "'Just think of all the different kinds of fish we always get that way,' suggested Fred." "'All right, boys, any time you say,' agreed Mr. Remington, who was never so happy as when there was something doing. Captain Ed, too, was most enthusiastic about the idea of a trawl, so the Sunset Islanders went to their tents that night to dream of hooks and fins and monsters of the deep, deep sea. They all met at the breakfast table the next morning, and the talk waxed so interesting that the usual object of sole attention, the star dish of the island, creamed beef and hashed-fried potatoes with soft-boiled eggs on the side was partaken of in an absent-minded manner. Fred and Billy and their boy guests, Paul and Dudley, were full of plans for baiting up the trawl by that afternoon. The girls, Elizabeth and Edith Remington, were anxious to help also. On the way from the bungalow after breakfast, Elizabeth explained to the boys, "'We can fish all morning and catch enough bait for the lobster traps.' and set the herring net to get the bait for the trawl overnight. How many hooks are on that trawl? asked Paul. About five hundred, replied Fred. Each one is on a short line called a gangin, which is about a foot and a half long. The gangins hang down every five or so feet along the whole length of the trawl. They have the hooks at the ends, and these we have to bait. Gee, how long is the trawl if there are five hundred hooks? wondered Dudley. About a half a mile long, returned Fred. Captain Ed was tinkering with the traps, putting in new heads and mending broken slats. By the time the boys and girls returned from their bait fishing, with a lot of sculpin' and flounderers, the four traps were ready. In a short time thereafter, the traps were baited and loaded on the largest rowboat. I want mine located off Treasure Cove, announced Billy. The captain says he has picked out some dandy places for duds and mine said Paul, not to be outdone. Huh, for Dud and you, or for your traps, joked Billy. I guess the boys would make good lobster bait, Bill, and if we weren't short of sculpins, we would use them. The lobsters would never know the difference. This pleasantry caused a rough-and-tumble scrap on the float stage, but the captain interrupted them by calling out the welcome order. All aboard! With hopes that filled the breasts of Paul and Dudley as the boat neared the spot chosen for the setting of the traps, Mr. Remington had declared the crustaceans to be scarce. Still the boys believed that fate would favor their particular traps and attract the lobsters into them. Luncheon that day was eaten to the accompaniment of various conjectures as to whether there were enough different kinds of fish in the bay to count twenty-five for a coup, to say nothing of fifty kinds for a grand coup in Woodcraft. Fred, you won the fish coup, didn't you? "'asked Paul. "'Yes, I had it awarded last year,' replied Fred. "'But all the fish I had been introduced to in this bay "'were not enough to complete the required number. "'I had to draw on some freshwater kinds to help me out.' "'Oh, Pshaw, then I don't see how Dud and I can get the coup this summer,' grumbled Paul. "'You're one ahead of the number I started with, anyway. "'You have the mola, and no one ever knows what a trawl may bring forth,' comforted Fred." The following morning the baiting of the trawl took a long time and the boys thought a good day's work was done when they had finished helping the captain and Mr. Remington. Each herring was cut into pieces and furnished enough bait for three or four hooks. They set the trawl out in the bay starting off at Flat Island. The captain's dexterous flipping of the trawl line was the despairing admiration of the four boys and he did not catch or tangle the long line once. "'Say, but that's swell work!' exclaimed Paul. "'I should say so. Some class to Captain Ed!' added Dudley. Mr. Remington and the captain laughed, but indeed, the performance was a wonderful feat. The half-mile trawl, with its five hundred dependent hooks, had been coiled in a tub with all the baited hooks in the inside of the coil.' Having attached the end of the trawl line to the anchored buoy, Mr. Remington and the boys rowed the boat slowly along with the tide, while the captain, reaching down with practiced hands into the coil in the tub, threw over the baited line with the aid of a stick. As the tide was on the flood, the Sunset Islanders had started at what would eventually be the southern end of the trawl, and they worked up the bay, the northern buoy, was anchored as they finished in the sunset glow. Rowing homeward, somewhat wet but happy, and ready as usual to replenish the inner man, they reached the float where Mrs. Remington stood watching for them. Ooh, what a mess the boys are in! And it will be worse, too, when you underrun the trawl. Worse still when you clean the fish. Now, boys, there won't be a stitch of clothing fit to wear about here, let alone to travel home in— unless you put away these suits and wear some old fishing togs. I only wish I had remembered to make you change this morning. Come, and I will fit you out as you should be. End of chapter one. Recording by Marty in Jacksonville, Florida.